Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. Amazing guest today, Radha Subramaniam, who is the President and Chief Research and Analytics Officer for CBS Corporation. And we are gonna be talking today about this fascinating area. Analytics, of course, is so huge today. Data, big data. And the area of how that gets applied in media is probably one of the hottest areas of all with everything that's going on in, across media, whether it's traditional media or digital media and the way that analytics are being used. So I can't wait to get into that conversation. I just wanna mention a few other parts of Rada's background because she has spent a career working in this space before she was the chief research and analytics officer for CBS, obviously one of the top media companies, she was the president of insights, research, and data analytics at iHeartMedia, another major blockbuster media company in the radio space. Before that, she was SVP of insights, research, and analytics at the Nielsen Company, clearly the number one leading third-party provider of research and analytics to the media industry. Before that, she had a key role at Yahoo. Before that, she was at Viacom. Before that, she was at NBC Universal. I mean, my first question is, which major media company has she not played a key executive role in around research and analytics? But clearly, a lot of, lot of experience, and I can't wait to dive into this fascinating topic. Rada, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And you do have a voice for the radio, as well as a face for TV. When the people in television tell you you have a voice perfect and a for face radio. for TV. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I know you've been in radio as well, so I appreciate that. Did you know when you signed up to be in the career focused on analytics that you were going to wind up being in the hottest job category in the world by the year 2021? Absolutely not. Who knows anything about the future, right? I signed up to be in a business I love. I signed up to be in media, and that includes television, film, radio, digital, and so on. So I did pick a really, really dynamic and interesting space. But who would have thought that these uh, quote-unquote nerdy jobs were the hottest jobs on the planet? Yeah, amazing. So much of what you've done has been at that sort of intersection of programming and creativity and analytics. And I'm a big believer that the best stuff comes about through some kind of interplay between creativity and data and research analytics, because I don't think you can create great anything, whether it's entertainment or anything else, just based on numbers and analysis. A computer can't figure it out. At the same time, one thing I'm talking about all the time on this show is being connected to the customer and really understanding what the customer needs is key. So finding that right balance is critical. I'd love you to tell a little bit about what do you do in the role as research, media, and analytics in these media companies? How does that interrelate between the science side, if you will, and the art side of entertainment. So it's a great way of phrasing it, right? Because we're about art and science, or really, as I like to talk about it nowadays, we're about science and soul. The word soul is critical because it's about the customer. So literally, the job of an analytics leader is to stay close to the customer, to really hear the voice of the customer, and bring that back to the teams, to the creative process. So that happens in many ways. We are very, very heavily involved very early in the creative process itself, getting feedback on concepts, getting feedback on talent, getting feedback on ideas, but we follow through all the way. And data is the best feedback loop. Data tells you if something is landing or not landing. 
data tells you how you can get better. And I do want to put one myth to rest, right? People think of creatives as anti-data. I've worked the greatest creatives in this country and this industry, and they could not be more data-led or data-driven. All creatives want to do is to be better, to be heard, to have their work resonate. So if you tell them or give them useful feedback of any kind, whether it's on casting, whether it's on the set, whether it's on costumes, or even the tone, they are all yours. In terms of the actual process, right, the way it works is we bring feedback back, but then we treat it together as a team. So I don't sit there being the data person. I bring the data in and somebody else may come in as the creative person. But ultimately, when we leave the room, we're all executives or a team committed to making the best creative out there. And there are times where I will say, hey, the data is murky on this one. So you have to make a creative call. Or I might say the data is really clear and this is not going to work or this is going to be a major hit. So it becomes a relationship of trust. It becomes a dynamic of conversation and interplay. And that's how you get the best results. Yeah. And I'm imagining, and, and keep me honest here if I'm misstating this way, but that there's sort of these two domains of data you work within. One is, like you mentioned, is something landing? Meaning, you know, for example, you have a show, it's running, okay, you know, who's watching, what demographics, et cetera. And then you have this more predictive data. Maybe you have a show in production or you have an idea that you're thinking of going to pilot. Will it work? Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two? I would imagine the second one is the harder one, trying to predict what will happen versus simply measure what's already happening. How do you do that? How accurate is that? Or, or, or have I even characterized in the right way in terms of those two domains? I think you have. I think that's a fair way of thinking about it. Let me address the measurement questions head on, and then we can get into the predictive and the creative, which is the more interesting of the questions, right? Measurement is very much in transition. There used to be, you know, one to two arbiters of third-party data, and that's very much in evolution. And what's critically important is the data we all sit on. We all have direct-to-consumer relationships. We get feedback in real time to what people are using, not using, etc. Social media has become a great listening channel. So our data, in combination with various third-party data sources, tells us the fuller picture of performance. And you hear a lot of angst in the media industry around measurement. I don't think of it as angst. I think of it as we know how to figure it out. We may not have a system or a vendor giving us the answers, but we have a pretty good sense of what's working and not working. So let's move past measurement, because honestly, even though we spend a lot of time talking about it, it's relatively simple for someone in my seat. And let's talk about the more interesting piece of it, which is what happens before. So I'm going to break this apart into a few different things. So the job of the insights and analytics reader is, first of all, to be really connected to the zeitgeist. We're really trying to figure out what's going on, how people are changing, how the country is changing, what the mood and emotion is. And there's a lot of work, both qualitative and quantitative, that you're constantly bringing back about how people are feeling about anything from politics to COVID to global warming, right? So that's our job. It's to stay in touch. And then we're involved with the creative process from the very beginning. When something is a concept, you can get some feedback on that, right? A rough thumbs up, thumbs down. But then it's your job to separate out where the feedback is useful from where it's less useful. But as you go along the process, your feedback loop and your predictive abilities get tighter and tighter. 
because as you have a finished product, you're testing it multiple times using many, many different methodologies. I will tell you about a very interesting project that I led a couple of years ago where I tried to marry AI with classic market research. In show testing market research, you have all these assumptions about what is predictive of a show's success. So we went deep into that and asked the question of whether the things we believe to be predictors are truly predictors. So I took 50 years of market research and made it talk to predictive analytics for 50 years to see if all of our assumptions were true or not. And the findings were really, really interesting. So what we intuitively knew was by and large true, but we could refine and increase our predictive power through one or two interesting variables that came out of the AI that we'd perhaps been paying less attention to. I won't get into all the wonkiness and the nerdiness of this. I just did a piece for MIT where we kind of unpacked this a little bit more. But essentially what we found is a combination of human intuition, classic methodologies, and AI can work magic together. Wow, interesting. And is there anything you can share about what some of those specific characteristics that may have been previously being overlooked that the AI made you realize you need to pay more attention to? Well, I couldn't do too much of it without giving away some of our secret sauce and how we're, you know, America's number one network yet again. But what I will tell you is that the, the variables were different by genre. There were different variables that kicked into play for drama versus reality versus comedy. And I think to a certain extent, we'd been treating all of them as relatively similar from a predictive point of view. And we found that some base metrics cut across all three. But then when you got into the specific genre itself, if you could get more sophisticated, your predictive powers would increase. Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started. And have you been able to measure from a pre-AI world if you said, hey, you know, if we have a slate of new shows coming on air this year, in the year 2000, what percentage of those were successful? Obviously, everyone knows that some shows become hits, some shows don't work out, you cancel them, you move on. Have you seen an increase in the accuracy of the percentage of shows that succeed long term as you started to bring together human intuition and AI? So I don't think we've done it quite as literally as that because we've been successful for quite a long time. But I will let the record speak for itself, right? America's number one network, but also the home of really, really big hits that reflect a diverse America. So The Equalizer with Queen Latifah as an action hero, and not a conventional action hero at all. Bob Hartsabishola, a romance between a Nigerian woman and a Midwestern guy. So we have these shows that we've arrived at through a combination of staying in touch with the zeitgeist and staying really close to the customer and using our predictive techniques. And we are figuring out how to really create for the changing face of America. We are a big tent network. We speak to multiple segments and all kinds of Americans. But to do diversity right is hard and challenging. And data has definitely helped us get there. Interesting. So I'm curious to understand how you operationalize that in the creative process. I mean, for example, does some creatives come in and pitch a new action show with Pierce Brosnan and then you say, you know, instead of Pierce Brosnan, what about Queen Latifah? Or is it more like you're just seeing so many pitches and you're able to use these 
criteria to filter through them and find the ones that match the zeitgeist or I can imagine some creative people and, and I might have the wrong impression because from what you said earlier, have a vision, you know, and they and they're not in love with analytics being used to tell them what they should be expressing and what they perceive to be perhaps an art form. So I work with the biggest, most successful creatives, and they're always hungry for analytics and hungry for data. And they know that their success is based on this feedback loop, right? So I won't get into the specifics of Piers Brosnan or not, but we have information always on various talent from the biggest names to some people you haven't heard of and are always monitoring them and are thinking about, you know, what makes them tick, how they can get better, who speaks to what audience and so on. But if I can fast forward a little bit and I'll get to uh, some of the creative process itself, I told you about concept testing, et cetera, right? But the actual shows themselves are tested both on the studio side and the network side. And they are put through multiple iterations of tests. We talk to people, we have focus groups, we have dial tests, we sometimes have neurometrics. We apply all kinds of methodologies and know what we're looking for because of a combination of AI and experience and can then sit in the room with the creatives and really help them fine tune the story. It's not the vision that we're questioning, right? It's more about the execution and the tone and the narrative. And we've built trust. We help them get better. We help them have bigger hits. So it's a relationship that builds over time, but something that's proved really valuable, not just for the analytics leader, but for the business and for the creative person. And yes, the, the biggest creatives in this country sit in the room with us and we work through these problems together. Right. Shattering the uh, illusion of temperamental artist who doesn't want to hear about the data, that's just not really what happens. Not at all. So you mentioned keeping your finger on the pulse of kind of that shifting zeitgeist. And I, you mentioned COVID as well as something that's been an influence. I'm curious, when you look at the data about what people are looking for, I remember, for example, we heard so much about how World War II transformed the entertainment landscape because people were depressed about what the war was happening. And it led to all these fluffy musicals and things people needed to be distracted from the realities of the world. Have we seen that kind of a profound impact on American entertainment tastes as they've gone through the COVID pandemic or different or what trends have you seen? Right. So I think that history will be written someday. I think we're too close and we're too in the history to know exactly how it's all going to shape up right now. But there are certain clear trends that we have seen. First is the Im increased importance of news and information. People really needed to know. They needed to know. Can you imagine that PowerPoint presentations around vaccination rates or hospitalization became great TV? We would have never imagined a future like that, but that's what we saw at the height of COVID, then back again in Delta and so on. So connection, information, community is one thread that we saw very actively. But then we saw the need to escape, right? So you see a lot of interest in comedy. We've launched this really great show that we've launched in the past few weeks called Ghosts, which is uh, essentially ghosts that inhabit a mansion in the Hudson Valley who come from various generations and, you know, from 2000 years ago to the present. And it's the number one new hit comedy on television. And we've seen some amazing feedback. So people want to laugh. And people also, of course, are into drama. 
Now, there are tactical things, right? Like in the beginning, masks were okay, and then it gets a bit tiring. And so you have to weave COVID into your narrative, but it can't be front and center in every narrative because that gets tiring, but you still have to acknowledge the realities that you're living in. But we find that people are looking for, uh, of course, people are looking for great stories, but they're also looking for unifying messages. I think people are tired of all the conflict. They don't want TV to be a place of drama in a, a negative sense, but a place of high drama in a positive sense that actually brings the country together and brings people together and makes them laugh. How does the advertiser side of this feed in as well? I imagine that as a broadcaster, for example, you have kind of two types of customers. You've got your viewer and you've got your advertiser. Does your research extend as well to what the advertising community is, is looking for or different formats, different ways of reaching? Obviously, we now have more addressable methods of reaching audiences. How does your research connect with that world? Right. So we, of course, care deeply about our clients' goals and want to make sure that our medium is doing the best for them. And this can come in many different ways, right? One is just sharing with them what we know about the country, the zeitgeist, the state of creative, and bringing them into our journey. The second is innovating with them and inventing new ad formats or new narratives with them. I talk about this great example where now you have what is, we call live binging. We always think about binging as a streaming thing, but people will sit there and watch FBI into FBI into FBI or Law and Order into Law and Order into Law and Order. So binging has actually made live television even more eventful. So we brainstorm about how to have advertising narrative that can follow that kind of creative narrative. And then, of course, there's targeting and addressable, right? And the best campaigns harness the mass as well as the target. So we partner with brands on that and on measuring the success. But overall, I will say the relationship between marketer and media company has never been tighter or more productive. It's not just a transactional buyer-seller relationship. It's a, okay, the world is changing. We all care about the world. How do we figure this out together? Because again, rising tide, all boats, we live and die together. Yeah, yeah. If I look at the media landscape, there's obviously the companies that classically represent old media, new media, right? You've got, you know, so many advertising dollars today that previously would have been in television or print being spent instead with Facebooks, the Googles, et cetera. And when I think of the role of, of analytics there, you know, it's, it's a little bit of an apples and oranges type experience if you compare YouTube to CBS. And yet the role of analytics clearly plays a critical function in terms of this recommendation, personalization. You know, I was just speaking to friends the other day about how I almost would be hesitant to let someone log into YouTube as me and see YouTube's suggestions for me. I'm not even talking about my, my history. I'm just talking about what they're, because I feel it reveals so much about me. <laughs> Nothing terrible, but they know me that well that when I look at their recommendations, I'm like, yeah, that's me, you know. So much of your work has been, I know you worked at Yahoo for a bit, but so much of your work has been with the great classic media companies that have historically anyway thought more of a, you know, in terms of a mass market type approach instead of an individualized, how do I reach indiv each individual viewer? Any thoughts about the future of that or how does someone like a CBS coexist in a media landscape with someone like a YouTube or a Facebook where analytics isn't just part of programming, but part of the whole way in which options are presented to the viewer? 
So the hottest topic right now in the media and advertising world is what we call connected television, right? Which is, you can call it over the top, you can call it whatever, but it's TV that has the sight, sound, motion, and storytelling, but also is data-enabled and data-led in terms of the recommendation engines in particular. Companies like mine aren't in this box of just mass media. We are in the box of managing Why do I call it a box? We're in the world of managing content across all of those screens and being quite agnostic to the platforms because we know the consumer always wins. We want to be wherever the consumer is. So we are just there to provide the best journey and the best partnership for the consumer. So we may use classic segmentation in our quote unquote mass market offerings, but the same show will be displayed through an algorithm or recommendation engine in a connected TV device. So those two things don't live in separate universe, right? And we are looking at the success factors across all of those and managing our content and our inventory across all of those screens. So recommendation engines, et cetera, are just table stakes for us and are very sort of base use cases of AI. But I want to also draw a point of differentiation because you mentioned this earlier, right? Which is that CBS is not the same as YouTube, etc. Can't get enough of winning digital customers? You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. It's important that analytics is used for the right purpose. So we have specific recommendation engines over on Paramount Plus, YouTube has a recommendation engine, et cetera. And those are appropriate uses of data and AI. What is not appropriate is to equivalize impressions. An impression delivered at a moment to 10 million people who are watching Equalizer as an action-packed commercial following an action-packed Queen Latifah is not the same as a cat video or creative that comes after a cat video. I think it's important to know the role of different media and the role different media play in the consumer's world, but to not equivalize them. And that I think is key to analytics. We are talking about outcomes, we're talking about measurement, but we're trying to differentiate these different avenues, these different channels and these different outcome metrics. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. And it it makes me wanna ask, does your analytics provide data to support the relative, let's say, influence of you know an interstitial on a cat video on YouTube compared to a commercial run for you know in terms of the influence on an individual sort of on a CPM basis to support this idea that hey if I run the same thirty second spot on a show like the Ghost Show you mentioned that one spot is having a greater impact on the consumer and therefore is worth more money than if you run that same commercial against a cat video on YouTube. So we absolutely do that kind of work, right? And we can absolutely tell you that the outcomes generated by television, capital T, far outweighs any other medium out there. But I think we also need to start separating within outcomes themselves because there is near-term sales, there is brand building, there is influence on a social, cultural, political point. So not outcomes are the same. Not all clients care about the same outcomes. And by the way, an individual client can care about a specific outcome through one campaign and a different outcome through another campaign. So it's our job 
to differentiate and to help our partners and clients understand how this specific tactic is tied to this specific outcome, but for a different set of outcomes or a longer term view, we'll need to look at a different set of outcomes. So again, I'm getting a lot into wonky land and you know, nerd land here, but I think differentiation rather than equivalization is key. And, and how do you find yourself in your role compared to, say, media buying companies that are working with your advertisers, who presumably are also and are being paid by the advertiser to advise them on that? How does that relationship work so that I'm guessing that it's a combination that you're helping support decision making that's also being advised by the agencies? How does that work? So in the, it works in a few different ways, right? Um, one is we're always investing in big research projects that look at entire categories and different kinds of campaigns so that we can share norms and findings and bigger pieces to help advise and help partner. On an individual case-by-case -case basis, there might be an outcome metric tied to a specific campaign or not, and we will, in some cases, measure them, the agency, in some cases, measure them, the clients themselves can have sophisticated attribution models, and each of those are addressing a different piece of the pie. And ideally, you're not just stepping on each other and, you know, duplicating the same work. But I see our role, ideally, providing sort of big picture partnership, big picture thinking and guidance. And then we will work with people and in individual campaigns and individual metrics. Uh, so we try to approach all of this through partnership and not stepping on each other. Uh, because the role of the advertiser, the role of the agency, and the role of the media company is really distinct. I want to go back to something you said earlier about how there's a certain agnosticism to your mindset about all the different places that your content might go and recognizing that the same piece of content that you create may wind up in lots of different recommendation engines depending on where it's syndicated to. Do you find that that actually changes the programming itself when you realize that, for example, if you go on YouTube, there's all kinds of niche content that may not have really been able to find an audience if there weren't recommendation engines that could say, oh, you're interested in you know, I don't know, antique watchmaking. Here's a show about antique watchmaking. It would have been hard to find that audience. And now potentially that audience can be aggregated into decent numbers. Does that influence the thinking when you're actually beginning the process of thinking about actually which types of shows to green light? Yeah. So first of all, the great liberation that has come with, you know, recommendation engines and digital media is the ability to super serve niches, right? Because there is a role for that. And there's a role for people who are interested in Halloween costumes for cats. I mean, why shouldn't somebody serve that need? That's not necessarily the role that a CBS would play. But let me share a little bit about how it plays in our world, right? So we get to see a ton of shows. We get to hear from many, many creators. And we're not going to be making Halloween cat videos for one person, etc. But we do look at larger addressable segments. And so what we have learned, and we're still, you know, very much in it, is a show that we may have thought of as broadcast first or belonging on broadcast television, we actually find plays better in a binging environment or in a streaming environment. So I'll give you the example of Evil. Evil is the show from Robert and Michelle King, the people who did Good Wife, Good Fight, great partners of ours amazing show like it's you know if you haven't watched it you got to try it because it's about how evil is you know in this world in all kinds of places including ai I, you know i don't want to give away too much it's a wonderful show and it started on cbs and did well but then we did an experiment with netflix where we had a partnership with them for a little while and we found 
how incredibly well it was doing in a streaming binging environment. So now Evil has moved from CBS and lives on Paramount Plus, our streaming service. So that's a great case of, yes, it's not a cat video. It's not a super niche audience, but it's relatively niche compared to the CBS mainstream. And more importantly, it's highly bingeable and consumed by people in that manner. So we found the best home for the show based on data and analytics, recommendation engine, as well as classical. Yeah, that's very interesting. And of course, one thing I really tip my hat to CBS for being very bold a couple of years ago when you brought out the first new Star Trek show in more than a decade, I think, and decided, I think you aired only the, the first episode, if I recall correctly, on broadcast. And then you kept the rest on your paid uh, subscription service and obviously drove a lot of subscriptions for people who had to see Star Trek. And I'll count myself amongst those that took out my credit card. <laughs> I mean, Star Trek is one of those great franchises, right? It cuts across generations. It cuts across millennia at this point. And we have, you know, great, great, great uh, creative lead on it in Alex Kurtzman. We have all of these narratives and storytelling that come out of Star Trek, including Star Trek Prodigy which only premiered recently, which is the animation version of it. It's a franchise that we feel very passionate about. It's a creative team that's incredible. And we do believe that streaming is the right place for it. Fantastic. I want to ask you one final question. This has been a fantastic journey through your very, very interesting world. And obviously you've been transforming a lot with technology and AI and machine learning. We've got so many tools that we didn't have just a few years ago in the analytics world, and yet there are still limitations to how far we can go, what we can see, what in intelligence we can derive from data. I'm curious, what are you looking forward to? What, what are the areas where you still feel, despite all the tools we have at our disposal today, you can't quite get the insight that you would like out of the data or quite get the data that you would like, and a couple years from now, what are some of the things you'd like to see improved, changed, more matured in some of these tools or data collection so that you can do even more? So I'm going to answer this a little counterintuitively, and I'm going to kind of go against the grain uh, of what a lot of data scientists say, which is, I think a couple years from now, we will understand that you can't remove the human from the data, that the data can take you so far, and the data can help your predictive process. But ultimately, you need humans to interpret the data and to make sense of it and help organizations make the right business decisions. So the people I'm hiring now, we can hire data scientists, we can hire modelers, we can hire all of those people. But the people who are really interesting and whom I'm trying to grow as we have the next generation of talent are people who can take all of that data, but then say, what does this mean? What can I do with this? And that requires a great deal of confidence in addition to chops and, you know, methodological expertise and all of that. So I will say that in a couple of years from now, uh, the tools will evolve, they'll get smarter, they'll get easier. I mean, there's still so much time spent on the back end and data cleaning and warehousing and like honestly really boring things that a human should not be spending time on. I'm hoping some of those will be farther along, but I think we're also going to understand that without a human, the data is meaningless. Interesting. So we need even more well-trained people who know how to use these tools so that they can extract the maximum from them, but also know how to layer on their own, their own thinking and human judgment. 
And who ultimately are confident and believe in themselves, right? Because without confidence, you cannot lead. And that sounds like the sort of lesson we would learn from Star Trek. So it all comes around. <laughs> Thank you, Rada. This has been fantastic. Really, really interesting stuff. Thank you all as well for listening and watching as always. Please join me in thanking our guest today, Radha Subramaniam, and look forward to seeing everybody next time on the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.